Imagine, you're trapped on a mountain, a victim of a plane crash that claimed the lives of many of your friends. With food rations dwindling and no sign of rescue in sight, do you have what it takes to survive? This is Take to the Sky, the air disaster podcast. So, Shelly, survival courses. Have you ever taken one? Do you know what they are? Have you considered it before? Oh, Stephanie, I have, like, wanted to take a survival class for so long. I'm kind of obsessed with the zombie apocalypse. Are you really? Totally. It makes my day. So I'm not like a doomsday prepper, by the way. (laughs) You know the show on, I don't remember what channel, but doomsday preppers where people plan for the imminent demise. Like the cases of water and food and all of that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but along those lines, while I'm not to that extent or degree of like, hyper vigilant about the end of the world Mm -hmm. I do think about it and want to be prepared and realize that I'm like most people like relying on technology I don't know what berries to eat what what not to eat (laughs) I can't stitch a button onto a coat so how am I supposed to survive a zombie apocalypse so yes I'm super interested I have always been curious about them too I can't say because of the zombies, although now you've kind of got me thinking and sort of cautiously looking over my shoulder just a bit, but I've always kind of wondered what it takes to kind of prepare yourself for that. The mentality of it, the physical, I mean, there's kind of a lot that goes into thinking that through. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why I'm kind of excited about today's story, because it takes survival to the max And most of these people probably had no idea that they would ever be in a situation where some of those skills might come into play. Uh, So welcome back. This is Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast, and we are your hosts. My name is Stephanie Hubka. And I'm Shelly Price. And we are thrilled that you are back with us today. It is rare that we have the chance to tell a story quite like this one, which combines so many twists and turns. We've got bad weather. We've got inexperienced pilots. We have a crash. We have hopelessness. We have cannibalism. It's a little bit of column A, a whole lot of column B. And this one's kind of fun because I first learned about this story while on vacation a couple of years ago in Montevideo, Uruguay. We were there, uh, it was actually just before we went to Antarctica, um, kind of a story in itself. But we're in Montevideo, uh, it's kind of late in the day, we're walking through town, and there's this museum that's dedicated to this thing called the Miracle in the Andes. And my husband, Adam, gets super jazzed about this. He's like, we've got to go in, and of course it's closed. And I'm like, what is this? And he's telling me about this plane crash that took place Not actually in Uruguay. We'll kind of get into a little bit of this. Um, But he's telling me the story. I'm thinking, this is too fascinating. I mean, this is almost, it almost sounds made up in all of the things that had to go terribly wrong and later on terribly right in order for anyone to potentially survive something like this. I mean, you don't always stumble upon stories like this. But I thought it was kind of a fascinating way to kind of get this introduction (laughs) to the fact that air disasters happen all over the place. And in this case, the Andes Mountains. And just just think, like, we talk about travel being a valuable part of our lives. Again, there you are on vacation, and then you encounter something that you've never heard of, and now – it's a story that we're we're sharing. And that yeah, I'm I'm excited to to talk a little bit about this one. So today's journey takes us to October 12th, 1972. Uh, and Montevideo, Uruguay is where things get started with 40 passengers who were eagerly awaiting takeoff on Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. They're going to be heading to Santiago, Chile, another fantastic spot, by the way. This isn't a typical commercial flight, though, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the stories that we're going to explore probably will be more along the lines of these standard flights. For sure. Um, in this case, Flight 571 was chartered by the Old Christians Club rugby team, and it was to transport players and their families for this huge annual match against the Old Boys Club, which was based in Santiago. You can kind of imagine what the atmosphere is probably like in this case. Um, it's a it's an annual match. It's tradition. Huge draw really exciting there are going to be a lot of people who are really really looking forward not just to getting on the plane but to getting to Santiago and you know in this case beating the other team I love rugby (laughs) by the way do you our college did not have a football team it was a d1 school but it didn't have a football team 
had a basketball team, baseball, other things, but we had a rugby team. That's amazing. And my roommates and I used to go post up and just watch the rugby players, and it was amazing. It's kind of like this mixture of like sheer athleticism and just raw kind of knocking into one another yeah. yeah it's like no whole like no like don't hold back you it's know? a cool sport yeah it really is uh so yeah i mean these guys are thrilled to be heading off to this match and kind of adding to you know what you could re- really consider the euphoria of all of this um this team is really close-knit uh the youngest player in the team is 18 years old the oldest is 25 and they practiced and played rugby regularly and competitively of course mm-hmm. um so it creates this really kind of a very brotherly bond between them. You know, you have this really close-knit, very, uh, you know, kind of young team, a lot of them within the same age range. And, you know, they they play like that. They live like that. This is a big part of who they are. So in this case, we've got 45 people um, who are going to be heading off in this flight. Uh, five crew members. This includes the pilot and the co-pilot. There were 20 seats that were taken by the team, and that left an additional 20 seats. Those were offered to friends and family. Um, like I said, with this being an annual event, you have a lot of friends and family who are excited to join. Um, so that's, that, they ended up taking up about half the, the flight. Unfortunately, um, kind of like what we talked about with our first podcast when we heard a little bit about what happened in D.C., the trip was not off to a great start even before the team got on the plane. Mm. There were reports of bad weather over the Andes Mountains, and that kind of threatened the trip immediately. Um, There was a significant amount of concern as to whether or not it was going to be safe for them to fly at all. Oh, wow. Ultimately, the pilot decided that it was safe to board and take off. Um, And in fact, the team urged the pilots to fly because they were so excited to get to Santiago and get to their match. So the plane ends up departing from Montevideo, uh, but it ended up touching down not long after takeoff in Mendoza, Argentina, which is only about 100 miles away. Uh, So they were not airborne for very long. The storm front was moving in quickly. And it wasn't safe for them to continue. So they end up spending the night in Mendoza. They're hoping that the weather is going to be better the next day. Um, you know, but at the time, it was safest to do the right thing, to land. Even though I'm sure they were super disappointed to have to do that. Yeah, it's like, you know, at that point, you're inching closer and closer. It's like, can we just get there already? Completely. So the next day is October 13th. Um, weather conditions remain still kind of a bit less than desirable. But the pilots decide that they're going to continue with the flight plan. Uh, The storm system that was over the Andes seemed to be breaking up a bit. And by the time the plane was scheduled to fly through the region, it looked like the weather was going to have improved enough to remove any of the visibility or the navigational challenges that might come with that particular flight. So despite the fact that the team was physically closer to Santiago than they had been the day before, there's kind of this new puzzle in place for the pilots to solve. So it's possible to fly directly from Mendoza to Santiago, but the plane that they were flying, which was a Fairchild FH-227D, it's not really well suited for that particular journey. So we're thinking a little bit about the geography of South America at this point, and specifically the Andes Mountains. To fly over the Andes would require a plane to reach an altitude of at least 25,000 feet. And the Fairchild plane that they had chartered for this particular flight had a a service ceiling of 28,000 feet. Ooh, that's close. Real close. So given that the plane was almost at capacity, the pilots would have had to do some really careful fuel calculations in order to be sure that they'd be able to clear the mountains at all. Additionally, that particular Fairchild aircraft was somewhat widely regarded by pilots as being underpowered. In fact, it had a really kind of ironic nickname. Uh, they called it the Lead Sled. Oh. Yeah, that's not, not the kind of nickname you want for something that's supposed to fly in the sky. You, I've, I've never really thought about getting on a plane that might have the nickname the Sled Especially when you're thinking about flying over mountains with snow. I, you, don't, you don't want to be on a sled no, for this. No. Uh, so, you know, it makes sense that you want to take some precautions. Yeah. So typically, when you're thinking about the route from Mendoza to Santiago, it's actually more customary to avoid the mountains almost entirely, which replaces that direct route with more of a U-shaped route. It adds time and distance, but it avoids a lot of the perils that would threaten planes like the Fairchild mm. and that really, really low variance that they have between 25,000 feet and 28,000 feet. 
So not surprisingly, that's precisely what the pilots decided that they were going to do. The plan was to depart from Mendoza. They were going to head south toward Marlogue, which would then take them west through the Planchon Pass toward the Chilean town of Curicó. And then finally on to Santiago from there. So you end up doing what sounds to be like this kind of roundabout way out of the way journey. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, you're playing with people's lives here. And the goal is safety. So this is absolutely the right choice for them to make. So in this case, we have two pilots who are on this flight. Um, Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas. Um, he's an experienced Air Force pilot, has more than 5,000 flying hours. And he has a co-pilot, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Lagurara. And he's actually the pilot in command of the aircraft. Um, as it turns out, Ferradas was training him during Flight 571. The reason that that happens to be really important is because Lagurara was responsible for making many of the navigational decisions that day. Knowing a little bit about training and recognizing that it's very important to have some real time making these decisions, it actually makes a lot of sense uh, that he would be in that position. Absolutely. And as we hear from other stories, that's not an unusual situation, right? Pilots have to get training mm-hmm. just like every other profession and it has to be on the job experience and it just so happens their on the job experience is in the air. Those simulators are only going to go so far. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So the passengers, as they're getting on board for the second leg of what they thought would be a single flight off to Santiago, uh, they thought they were going to be in for a bumpy ride immediately after takeoff. The plane hit severe turbulence and really thick fog as soon as they departed, and the visibility really didn't improve as the plane followed its course toward Marlargue. Because the weather conditions were really bad, the pilots could not visually confirm their location. And that meant they had to rely solely on radio navigation to ensure that they were staying on track. Usually you'd want them both. You want to rely on what you're seeing. You also want to rely on what the plane is telling you. And fortunately, the pilots were able to successfully get as far down as the Planchon Pass, which they could navigate but they incorrectly identified their location shortly thereafter. They thought that they had already reached Curicó, and they radioed the tower in Santiago and let them know that they were ready to begin their descent. So the controller in Santiago had no idea that the plane actually wasn't anywhere near that location. It was still directly over the Andes. Oh, no. They were nowhere near Curicó. And so... The controller ended up granting permission to begin descent into Santiago. It was right about then, though, that visibility likely improved. And in that moment, the pilots would have started to see the tops of the jagged peaks of the Andes Mountains directly in front of them. Oh, my gracious. Can you imagine? That's also when they would have known that they were on course for a direct hit. Oh. Passengers who were on board reported a whole range of terrifying conditions in the moments following that initial descent. The turbulence that they had hit became even worse. The plane was shaking violently and uncontrollably at this point. Some of the team members tried to laugh it off, um, you know, at least until the aircraft ground collision alarm sounded, which alerted everyone on board that impact was imminent. See, I never want to be on a plane where I can hear that, where I can hear the pull up, pull up, or whatever. No. You write none of those cockpit no. warnings. I never want to be an earshot of any of those. That would just make my blood run cold completely. Thinking about it. I've never heard that either. Thinking about that makes my blood run cold. Completely. I have no idea when you hear that what you do. Do you do what you do? Um, you know, what we talked about with the 14th Street Bridge crash where you brace for impact. Brace for impact. Do you know enough? Right. You know, do you wish you had a passenger on board like the one who knew to do that? Yeah. You start to wonder. Um, I imagine that like you probably would also be in denial, right? Completely. Like we always, <laughs> right? We always try to like rationalize the disaster before us. Okay. Just our human nature. Completely. Yeah, it's um it's a scary moment. It is I mean, just absolutely sure. blood curdling for all on board. And when Flight 571 crashed into the Andes Mountains, it made contact multiple times. Oh no. The pilots were able to raise the nose of the plane above the mountains initially, but the first impact came when the tail didn't clear the peaks. Mm. The second impact tore the plane's right wing off, 
Um, and that occurred with such force that it also tore off the rear portion of the fuselage. The fuselage is the main portion of the aircraft. Um, so that's where many of the passengers and many crew members were, were seated. And that's also where you get the first fatalities from this particular event. So literally the back of the plane was ripped off and Completely. then fell through the sky. That is exactly what happened. Oh, man. Yep, okay. that's right. And so when the rear portion of the fuselage was torn off, it left this huge hole in the aircraft. Five people actually fell through that hole. Mm. And those people included three passengers, the navigator, and the flight steward. Initially, they were considered to be missing. Um, now, of course, we know that they did not survive that impact. The left wing also hit the mountains immediately after that, and that caused the propeller that was attached to the left wing to slice into the fuselage. Two more people fell out into that new opening, and then the fuselage itself crashed into the mountain. And much like you might think of a lead sled, it slid for more than a half a mile before it collided with a snowbank. Half a mile. Half a mile. Could you imagine being strapped into your seat and experiencing that, I can't even imagine. I hope that I would pass out or something or not be conscious for part of that because I, I can't imagine the terrifying feeling. You wonder, I mean, it, it certainly, the velocity is pretty, I mean, it's moving pretty fast at this point. But on the other hand, in situations like that, does time stop for you or does it speed up? Even if it's going at its normal pace, I feel like those are incredibly long seconds absolutely and it must have just felt completely out of control well and it did um and ultimately there was one final impact um mm. and that's what crushed the cockpit uh that killed colonel ferraras and it injured lieutenant colonel lagorara so now we have our pilot who is deceased and our lieutenant pilot um who is alive so when the plane took off from mendoza it carried 45 people and just over an hour after takeoff, only 33 of those people were still alive. Oh, my goodness. So before we, we talk more about what happens in this story, let's talk a little bit about the Andes in October. Mm. It's springtime in the Andes. Uh, if you are based in the Northern Hemisphere, as we are, our winter is summer in the Southern Hemisphere, so our fall is their spring. Even though it's springtime, the mountains are still very much holding on to winter. Um, and this is especially true because of the location where the plane happened to crash. The survivors found themselves stranded at approximately 12,000 feet above sea level, a significant change in altitude from their home in Montevideo, and it's also a huge change in climate. They didn't have enough warm clothing for the snowy and icy conditions that they were met with. They weren't planning a winter vacation. They were planning to continue on to Santiago. And it's also important to think a little bit about the impact of the altitude itself. The human body has different and more significant caloric needs at altitude, and it's much easier to become dehydrated at altitude. So combined with the fact that many of the passengers were also severely injured and barely clinging to life, you can imagine that these conditions are more or less unbearable. It's a worst case scenario. You, you know, and I don't know if, if you've traveled much to spots that are at high altitude. I can tell you, I don't handle altitude very well. A lot of people don't, and no. they get the altitude sickness, right? I've been, so when I was in Cusco, I had a terrible time with altitude, in part because it didn't hit me right away. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I'd been there for about a day or so that I really started to feel the impact. And because I didn't know at the beginning of my trip that I was going to get so sick, I didn't treat my body as if I might get sick from the altitude. So when you think about people who are not dressed for the conditions, they are now facing altitude, which may impact them and may not. And also the fact that many of them are already injured, in some cases critically injured. I mean, all of these combined, it is very difficult to imagine survival for any length of time. No, those are really dire conditions. It's, um, it made for a very difficult first night on the mountain. Um, and in fact, the first night on the mountain is probably a good way to start to introduce you to some of the survivors. And I did use the word survivors. There were 45 people who left Montevideo on Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, which means that there are 45 very unique stories that are part of the tapestry for this event. Some of those stories end during and upon impact. 
Um, and for some survivors, the most critical chapters of their lives begin in those initial moments. So I want to introduce you to a couple of survivors in particular, um, Gustavo Zerbino and Roberto Canessa. They're both medical students and they play on the rugby team. They immediately sprang into action to start providing care and comfort for the people who needed it. Lieutenant Colonel Logorara, um, who was the co-pilot on the flight, he's still alive, despite the fact uh, that the impact of the fuselage into the side of the mountain, you know, critically wounded him. And he asked a fellow survivor to find his pistol and shoot him to end his misery. The passenger declined his request, mm. however, but I think that's a really good descriptor of how people are feeling in that moment. What would you do if somebody asked you? <laughs> I, to do that like I'm I'm miserable this is this is not sustainable just shoot me literally just well, shoot you know me. you know what's interesting is the fact that he wasn't shot you know that it, the answer is no I'm not going to do that mm-hmm. does that come from a place of hope does that come from the expectation that you might survive I mean that's what I think is is fascinating about that particular component of yeah. it Wow, uh, so, so I mean, that, that is how badly wounded he is as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another passenger, uh, Fernando Parado, who's known as Nando. He actually slipped into a coma for the first three days due to severe head trauma and brain swelling. By the time the sun would rise on their first full day on the mountain, five more people had passed away from their injuries. That included uh, co-pilot Lagurara oh, and no. also Nando Parado's mother. Remember, there were family members traveling on board. And in this case, um, Nando's mother, who had joined to watch him play, also passed away. So on this first day, conditions on the mountain were unimaginable. But a plane doesn't crash without somebody taking notice. And less than an hour after the crash, the Chilean Air Search and Rescue Service were en route to find the crash site, as well as any survivors. So on the first day, four planes departed for a remote part of the Andes where the rescuers believed the plane likely went down. On the second day, 11 planes went out, and three of the planes went close enough to the crash site that the survivors saw them and tried to attract their attention. But they didn't succeed. Um, If you think about it, the rescuers were searching for a white plane somewhere within miles and miles of snow and ice. And the fuselage easily became part of this very stark landscape. It's like a white bird in a blizzard. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's there's almost no hope of being spotted from overhead. So the search continued for eight days, going out, searching this, you know, vast land of just snow and ice. Um, And during that time, one of the survivors actually was able to both find and power on a transistor radio that happened to be between the seats of the plane. That allowed all of the survivors to listen to the search and rescue updates. They couldn't communicate outwardly, but they could hear the updates. So on the 11th day, the radio delivered a really serious blow to their confidence because they were able to listen as the rescuers called off the search and determined that there was no hope anyone survived the crash. Mm. I don't know what that moment is like either. You are, you hear the planes, you see the planes, and then you hear the news that they're not going to keep looking for you anymore because they know you're probably not alive. It has to be so frustrating because they can't just make the call out to say, we're here, you know, come find us, keep searching. Yeah. I mean, it has to be, it almost like for me, for some people, I imagine it must have cemented their hopeless feeling of never being rescued. You, you know, you would, you would imagine that. And it's interesting. There are, there are a lot of stories um, that have come from this. There are books, there are movies, Alive being one of the more famous ones, which, which I've, you may have nev- seen. I've never seen, by the way. Yeah. I, you, they do a fantastic job of recreating and sharing some of the details. Uh, there's actually a book called Alive. Um, it's by Piers Paul Reed. And there's a, a quote that I wanted to share that I think kind of does a great job of sharing both the devastation and even the hope that emerges in this moment. Um, So the quote from the book, um, the others who had clustered around Roy upon hearing the news began to sob and pray, all except Nando Parado, who looked calmly up at the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo Nikolic came out of the aircraft and seeing their faces knew what they had heard. Nikolic climbed through the hole in the wall of suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel, and looked at the mournful faces which were turned toward him. Hey, boys, he shouted. There's some good news. We just heard on the radio. They've called off the search. Inside the crowded aircraft, there was silence. 
As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is that good news? Because it means, he said, that we're going to get out of here on our own. Wow. The courage of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair, end quote. I get goosebumps reading that because you think about how you might feel in that moment. They're, how the hell is that good news? That's not good news. No. They're not looking for us anymore. Right. And then you have one person who's like, you know what? We're going to do this on our own. They're not going to help us. We're going to help us. It's amazing that some people really just have – they are born with that innate positive mindset that no matter what the circumstances are, it's like we're not done until we're done exactly. kind of mentality. And until then, we don't give up. It is incredible. Yeah. It, I, I found it to be really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So that was day 11. They find out no one's coming for them. On day 12 of the 45 people who are on flight 571, 27 were still alive. 16 were known to be dead. And two were missing and presumed to be dead. So the search and rescues called off. No one's looking for them. They didn't know precisely where they were. And the only information that they knew was what Lieutenant Lagurara told them, which was that they were close to Corico, which was incorrect. So they have bad information on top of that. They didn't have nearly enough food or water or warm clothing. At night, the temperatures are dropping to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Snow blindness is now an issue. Most people didn't have sunglasses. So with the sun glaring off the snow, that's impacting their vision. I wouldn't have even thought of that. And on top of this, they're now officially running out of food. And in fact, when they did, they started to eat the plane itself. Several survivors actually attempted to eat the cotton from inside of the seats, which did make them sick. But they were so hungry that that was their option. Oh my goodness. That Getting, makes me real. That just, that's, it, oh. it turns your stomach. But you also think, I mean, in, in a case where you have to survive, what else do you do? Yeah, what do you do? You have to think of something. Yeah. Right? Now, they're also in a place where there's a ton of snow and water, mm-hmm. you'd think, because, you know, with the snow, the ice, obviously that's also water. But getting water, even in an area like that was a huge challenge because the water froze in such cold temperatures and even touching it with their lips was causing chapping and blisters. Mm. So this presents a bit of a catch-22. Dehydration happens faster at altitude, which means you need more water at higher elevations. But the water is... But you can't drink the water. Right. So combined with the fact that the survivors were completely out of food uh, in a single week on the mountain, they faced a growing number of hard decisions. And... One in particular, I think, kind of deserves a moment of reflection. We talk a lot. I mean, one of the common phrases we'll use is I'm starving. You know, things, even like I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. You know, we have all these ways of saying I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been so hungry that you would resort to eating just about anything? I think so. But it's always been the choice of is it an apple or an orange or a sandwich or chocolate cake, right? Mm-hmm. It's always been the normal, standard, traditional options. Completely. I I definitely use that phrase. I'm starving. You know, mm-hmm. oh, like, I, I'd eat anything right now. Right. And in a way, it's hard to be surprised by the fact that cannibalism became a part of the survivor's conversation. Cannibalism is a tough topic anyway. Obviously, taboo, big no-no. taboo. I mean, we're talking horror story Mm -hmm. at this moment in time. And there are a couple of other factors, too. Um, A lot of people are Roman Catholic. Mm. Uh, Coming from Uruguay, there are a lot of Roman Catholics. Cannibalism, really big no-no in the Roman Catholic religion. But at the same time, uh, they're starting to realize that they're running low, very low on food. They end up forming a pact between the survivors, those who were still alive. And they agreed that if a teammate consented and they passed away, that their body would be kind of available if someone needed that additional food source. That said, some bodies were protected. Uh, They did not want to eat those who had passed away without confirming that they were part of that pact. Others, uh, for example, Nando Parado's mother and sister uh, who are on board, they were not considered part of this. Uh, So they respected family members uh, to the best that they could. But in some cases, uh, there were certainly people who said, if I pass away, you know, if I can help you live, I want to do that. So it's, 
it's amazing to think that we're now looking at day 17, and that's how quickly things had to deteriorate. No food, no water. And now we're looking at having to turn to things like cannibalism. I mean, you can imagine, I, it, to say this is a dire circumstance is, you know, almost comically, <laughs> like just woefully inaccurate. It no. is so much worse than that. It, I mean, it's it's even like, it's barbaric to think of it, right? I mean, this is like, it's, it's it goes against all of our instincts, and yet it's completely instinctual to want and need to live and survive. Totally. And it's shocking that it's come to this, but it really goes down to, they have no choice. And so the choice becomes, mm -hmm. this is our very, very last effort yeah. to survive. If any one of us is going to survive, this is the only option. Exactly. And I mean, you think mm. about it, like this really is as bad as it can get, right? Completely. No, absolutely not. Oh, no. <laughs> Day 17. There's wah, more tragedy wah. because an avalanche strikes. What? Come on. And that kills eight people. Okay, like whoever the fates are and controls all of this stuff, I just want to be like, they had enough on them. You look up at the Why? sky and you're like, this is just mean. Like, I any like, deity really? you might pray to, <laughs> uh, if you happen to pray to any deity, deity at all, it's like, come on, guys. Really? This is unacceptable. Oh, yeah, yeah. So an avalanche strikes. Um, Gustavo Nikolic, uh, who we remember, he was the one who said, we're going to do this on our own. He's one of the people who dies in the avalanche. No. The, you know, the, the one who is really kind of rallying the troops. Um, so that's a tough blow for everyone as well. Um, and it struck while people were sleeping. So there's no opportunity to prepare for that. They didn't know it was happening until it was happening. Um, completely filled the fuselage with snow. Uh, so that's where they so that's were bunkering their shelter. Down. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they're having to try to dig out from already sort of an enclosed space. Uh, the survivors couldn't escape for three days due to the blizzard conditions. So they're completely stuck there in the middle of this. Um, and this also is what is a turning point toward leading them toward cannibalism. Because at this point in time, everything that they had is completely covered in snow. And this is where you start to see that if you're going to survive, you may need to make very difficult decisions. Something that many of them felt like they needed to do. This is where it also starts to to kind of creep up on them that help is not going to arrive before death does at this point. If they're going to survive, they have to take their mortality into their own hands. And that is precisely what they decide to do. They decide they're going to seek rescue. They can't wait any longer. They're going after it. So they nominated Robert, uh, Roberto Canessa. Um, he's the medical student, one of the two, uh, one of the survivors, and he's also in some of the best physical condition. So they decide he's going to lead a team of survivors to survey the area around the crash site. There weren't a lot of volunteers to join him. Uh, most people were exceptionally weak from the conditions and from the lack of food. So ultimately, it's uh, Roberto Canessa, Nando Parado, and there were two others uh, who set out to seek help. They didn't end up finding help, uh, but a mile away from the fuselage, they did find the tail of the plane, which was the first part of the plane to break off during the crash. And the good news is they also found luggage. And within the luggage, they found some additional food, uh, mostly chocolate, which was kind of a welcome surprise, some additional clothing, and also some medicine. Uh, they also found the plane's two-way radio and some batteries, and that was really exciting for them. Uh, they ended up spending a night camping inside of the plane's tail before setting back the next morning. Um, unfortunately, though, the second night wasn't quite so good. They didn't have any shelter on that particular night, and they almost froze to death in the mountain because of that. So... Because they were hoping at this point in time to be able to drag a lot of what they had found back with them, uh, they realized that they weren't really able to do that. Um, the plane's batteries, which they were, they were hoping to use in order to power the radio, were really heavy. And so they ended up removing the radio system and carrying that back to where the battery was with the tail instead. Unfortunately, all of that was for naught. Um, the battery wasn't able to power the radio, so they spent a good amount of time trying to make that work. And unfortunately, since it required a different voltage and they couldn't make it work, um, the radio idea ended up getting scrapped a bit as well. Now, a couple of days have passed. We have more of our survivors who are passing away. Um, and so the situation is growing more and more dire by the day. And finally, it becomes clear that they really need one more final attempt to leave before things get even more critical. Um, there were a lot of challenges still. How to stay warm is becoming a problem. Um, they're, they're really starting to, to you know, like they're finding some of the materials that they have. A lot of these are not keeping them warm enough. And so they realize that 
it's not enough to survey the area around them. They actually have to go out to seek help. And so they do. Um, they send three men out on an expedition that they're hoping are, is going to be life-saving. Uh, Parado, Canessa, um, and a third person are kind of nominated to go off. The climb to get over the Andes Mountains, um, heading in the direction that they believe is going to most likely lead to their rescue, is so slow that for the first three days, survivors who were back at the fuselage they could watch their progress. They could see them when they paused. They could see when they restarted again. That's how slow it was. Oh, my goodness. You think about the conditions. You think right. about the snow. You think mm-hmm. about, you know, the ice. They're, they don't have hiking gear on. No. They don't have the right boots for this. No. And their legs just have to be, like, sinking all the way in. And then the fact that they're probably terribly emaciated, dehydrated. Their Completely bodies, right, are not physically capable. Exactly. Um, so... On the third day, they finally get to what they knew was the tallest peak that they could see. They also know this is the one where when they get to the top, they're finally going to be able to see these beautiful green valleys in Chile. Instead, when they get to the top, they just see more snow and mountains. So they're running out of food. Uh, They decide that they're actually going to send someone back uh, so that the remaining rations that they had for their expedition could be split between two people instead of three. And so it becomes Parado and Canessa who continue the journey. They end up, it's only been three days, they're still basically with an eye shot. And in fact, they're so close to the fuselage that the third person was able to use an airplane seat that he found as a sled to return back in one hour. Slid down the mountain in only one hour. And, then he, and he's back. After three days of journeying, if you can imagine that, it's... It's tough. It's tough to imagine. You all of that work, all of that progress, you're desperate. I mean, desperation is what's driving you out at this point. Completely. And that's how close they were. Mm. So Parado and Canessa decide they're going to continue on together until they find help or they are going to die trying. So they hike for several days more. They're sleeping in the one sleeping bag that they have. They spend their days waist deep in melting snow. And they finally see signs of other humans. Yes. On the ninth day, they saw cows. And they stopped close by where they saw the cows to build a campfire. And that is when they saw three men on horseback across the river. Awesome. They couldn't communicate with the men um, because of the distance, because of the width of the river. But one of the men happened to have a piece of paper and a pencil. And he tied it to a rock and he throws it across the river. And Parado wrote a note back and he threw it over to them. And on the note it said, I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plain there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out from here quickly, and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come to fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? Can you imagine reading that message, right? So you know. The desperation in those questions. Right? Where are we? We like, have no food. You know that the person clearly is in need, right? You can probably tell by their physical state. Yeah. But then to get that, like, maybe they're lost. Maybe they got separated from a group. I'm somehow wandering out here. All of that, I can't imagine what that that man was thinking and feeling. To get that, I mean, you you don't quite know what you're going to get in a situation like no. that. You're probably not expecting to see anyone. To get that, uh, uh, that yeah. being written on the note. It's an air disaster, and this is why I'm here. So the men, uh, they didn't have any more paper, but they were able to yell across this river and basically communicate, we'll be back tomorrow. And they did. They returned the next morning with loaves of bread. And that afternoon, a man on horseback was able to reach them. And he took them to Curaco. They finally made it over to Curaco. And Prado and Canessa at that point were safe. It took two days for helicopter rescuers to bring back all of the survivors. The Chilean army could carry only seven people back at a time in the the helicopters that they took out to the site, which meant half of the survivors were rescued on December 22nd. The other half were rescued on December 23rd. How do you decide who goes? I don't even like, know. Who, who gets I the mean, ticket on that this first This is a plane, true rock, the, paper, scissors right? incident. I mean, like, I, I suppose it's by whoever is most critically yeah. wounded, most malnourished. But at that point, I feel like it's probably an even split. Yeah. Um, 
And they were treated, by the way, for a whole host of medical issues, including malnutrition, altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, uh, broken bones, and scurvy, just to name some of the most prominent challenges that they were facing at the time of rescue. In total, we had 45 people who set out. 16 people survived. And those people lived on the mountain for 72 days. That is miraculous beyond all comprehension. It is it is shocking to think about that. Shocking to think about the willpower, the drive, the desire to live. You think about the co-pilot who begs someone to shoot him, to put him out of his misery. You think about the person who says, we're going to get us out of here together, on our own. On our own. We're yeah. going to make this happen. Mm-hmm. You think about, it's the lowest of lows, it's the highest of highs. Yep. The and sheer will and determination that they had to find within themselves I mean, that's the kind of thing that, again, we talk about this over and over, Mm -hmm. right? I would like to think that I have that in me, but I don't really know that any of us know for sure unless and until we're in that situation. And clearly, that's a big part of what got them through, I have to imagine. I mean, I'm not in their shoes, but I imagine if they were recounting this, perhaps that's how they felt. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And getting back into society afterwards was difficult you don't suffer through this kind of just horrific situation and easily very gently ease your way back in Um, the cannibal issue came back there was a huge impact for many of them from that the survivors wanted the details of all of that to remain private for obvious reasons this is not something and it's not something they're proud of it's something that they they absolutely had to do Mm -hmm. Um, a challenge, though, is that one of the local papers published photos of half-eaten legs. What? Another reason why you, you know, we we question the media sometimes and the intent and how stories are told and what facts and figures are presented. But that was a photo that was somewhat widely shared. And certainly um, there's like different journalistic standards all around the world and some of them are more sensationalist, of course, and right? That's, but... That goes beyond... Well, it's a shame, too. This whole story is sensationalist. You know, I mean, this is... It is shocking you can survive this at all. And it's also shocking that that's a a takeaway, that a paper would want to share. Where's your decency? When they ended up having to have a press conference to explain themselves. Now, ultimately, although this becomes, you know, still kind of a theme and something that you hear about regularly with this particular story, and a reason why I include that here, um, one thing to note, though, is that the Catholic Church forgave them this. And I think that that's also important too, in that because many of them were Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. that was a huge concern. It was important to them. It was very important to mm-hmm. them. Um, it let them know that what they did really was for survival. Um, so I think that that's, it's important to know. Um, they did get the, the forgiveness that they were hoping to get at the other end. Um, those who died on the mountain remain there. Uh, they were buried there. And in fact, um, there there is today, it's of course very difficult to get to, um, there is a simple gravestone that exists um, to honor all of them, uh, with the inscription, the world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, oh God, to you. Aww. Which is nice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, you know, it, and again, it's it's not something I would suggest as a tourist destination or anything like that, um, but a nice memory, a nice way to remember that they, uh, those who lost their lives there did receive a burial. Um, the museum that I mentioned as we started chatting, it's called the Museum of the Andes. Uh, which is in Montevideo, well worth a visit. It's fully dedicated to the crash. Um, And for those who survived, by the way, um, many of them had a hand as far as what information is now in that museum. But many of them have remained very close. Um, In fact, they, at least for a while, were getting together annually for a reunion. I had mentioned before, they started out kind of like brothers playing on this rugby team. And in a weird way, I guess... Nothing could bring you closer than a true tragedy that tests absolutely everything that you have. And that's exactly what happened here. Many of them became motivational speakers. Many of them published books. Um, I have read a couple of them. Absolutely suggest that you consider doing the same. I'll link to a couple of those, actually, in our show notes, um, in case you're interested in in checking a few of those out. Um, Specifically, though, we had two people who really emerged as heroes in this. I think everyone really was one, um, but there were two that... They were the ones who were able to get over the mountain and the ones who were able to seek uh, the help that ended up saving their friends' lives. For sure. 
Um, so Nando Parado, uh, he ended up taking over his father's hardware store. He got married. He became a TV personality. And he is a motivational speaker who works in the field of trauma. A wonderful tribute to some of the skills that he would have learned to, you know, empowering people who survive very challenging situations. Yeah, I think he'd know a little something about that. Just a bit. Um, and also uh, Roberto Canessa, um, Dr. Roberto Canessa. Whoa. He was a medical student. He did end up becoming a pediatric cardiologist as awesome. well as a motivational speaker. That's so great. Um, kind of a cool way to look at the fact that you, I, and I guess, you know, something I was thinking about throughout this story is when you survive a tragedy, does it define you? Or is it something that becomes part of you? And I think especially in the case of Parado and Canessa, you see a situation where it is absolutely part of who they are, but it did not define their, you know, their careers and what happened next. Canessa was a medical student and he became a doctor. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, maybe it helped them to find other ways that they could give back. But I, you know, I just thought that was such an interesting takeaway from some of that. Absolutely. And then just think about all the things that we can learn about human resilience mm -hmm. and how much someone can go through yeah. and keep going and keep going and how to work together with very little resources, yeah. with very little hope. So we don't have an emotional support system. We don't have a physical support system. We are literally going to have to make this up out of nothing Completely at times true. to keep going and going despite probably everyone at one time wanting to give up. Mm-hmm. You know, and how do you stay motivated and how do you just find that intense, you know, animalistic sheer will to survive? And that is absolutely, and not just to survive, right? Because the survival ended the moment that they were rescued absolutely. and then the rest of their lives began. Mm -hmm. And that's, and to hear that they've made so much of that, not that they needed to make any more of their lives than the rest of us, right? but it's always about what are you going to do with the time that you have? It is. And the fact that it becomes part of who you are, but not necessarily the definition of who Absolutely. you are. And I think it's, you know, there were so many points in this story where things, could they get worse? I hope not, but then they do. Exactly. And yet- you are still seeing this theme of positivity. You're still seeing this theme of wanting to persevere, to continue to survive. And I, you know, I just find that to be, you know, an incredible testament part, you know, it's certainly to the will to live, mm -hmm. but also, you know, to the character of the people who were involved in this. You never know what a day is going to bring. You definitely don't know what 72 days is going to bring in this case. And I just, I, I love this story for that reason, because it is, it, when you, when you think about air disasters, usually the impact is immediate and often the resolution is fairly quick. Mm -hmm. In this case, the resolution wasn't quick at all. It took two and a half months before there was any real resolution to this for many people. And so I just, I find it to be kind of a, a fascinating look at what you kind of can do in situations like that. So just... Yeah, what I, I don't know. One of my favorite stories. It's a great story. So I really love this story because this is about people who persevered over incredibly, impossibly hard circumstances. And, you know, yep. not to correlate what's happening now in real time with anything that they've gone through, but, you know, like, what do you, what do you make of all of this with, with COVID-19 and everybody staying at home? You know, like, how are, how are you doing? <laughs> That's a really good question. I have started to look forward to these four mile walks that I do every day just to get out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably a good way of explaining exactly where my mind is right now. This mm -hmm. has not been easy, you know, I, and I yeah. know we weren't expecting it to be easy, but it has been a challenge from, you know, just the the day-to-day -to, -day to the work. I mean, switching to remote work for a lot of people has just been impossible. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many challenges around that. And, you know, when you were talking about, you know, your four-mile walk, I feel like we've kind of rediscovered the outdoors lately. And I also feel like a lot of folks here in the neighborhood have as well. You know, people mm -hmm. are really great about keeping their distance, but you know, we have like a very small spot right in front of our house and our son 
use this time to learn how to ride a bike without training wheels. Oh, that's right? amazing. So, yeah. So, you know, I think, I think people in general are just trying to make the best out of the situation. And I, I just really hope that, you know, everybody really just continues to, to stay home and stay safe. Yep. I totally agree. And one thing I would absolutely mention as you were talking about being outside, I love the fact that when I'm out, my neighbors are always so excited to wave and I feel like a maniac waving back to them. It's like, oh my gosh, it's a human. I feel like there's just this incredible sense of community right now. I'm really hoping that is something that we don't lose. You know, it's it's kind of a horrible way to be brought together. And then Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's so nice to be reminded that we're all in this together. But like you said, the important thing is to stay home and listen to our podcast. (laughs) Hey, how about that? (laughs) Well, I, for one, am really glad that we have decided to start this podcast uh, with all of this random free time now that we happen to have. It's uh, it's kind of fun for us. And you know, hopefully it gives all of you something fun to listen to. Um, so we are really excited that you were able to be here to join us uh, for what is now our second episode. Um, we have plenty of additional stories that we are excited to tell you all about uh, over the next couple of weeks and months and even once we get out of quarantine. Um, so we would love to hear from you. Uh, if there happens to be an air disaster that kind of got you into thinking a little bit about this particular genre. We'd love to hear about that from you. If you are interested in finding out a little bit more about us, we certainly recommend you check out our website, which is taketotheskypodcast.com. Also a great place for you to be able to send us a note uh, if you'd like to do so. We are on social media. Uh, You'll be able to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Take to the Sky Podcast. And of course, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And I think more than anything, uh, don't forget to join us for our next show. Uh, For now, though, uh, this has been Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast, and you have been listening to Shelly and to me, Stephanie, and we will see you next time.